Folks, this has been a crazy week, hasn't it? My goodness, I hope that you're doing okay. And I wonder often, I wonder where you're at. You know, I know I know our Colossae East crew. So my name is Ben Tartine, and this is the Colossae East podcast. We're a small community that meets here on the east side of Portland, Oregon. Uh, but each week, a few more people listen in, and I know it's gone out around the country. So welcome to everybody who's listening. Um, this has been crazy i don't know how to even put it weird ironic you know we're celebrating on january 6th the epiphany which we've been celebrating for 1800 years or so clement of alexandria wrote about it back in 200 (laughs) a.d like this moment where we focus and then depending on what tradition of christianity you're in You focus on these two different moments. One is the big reveal where Jesus is with the wise men. And and it's, you know, him not just revealing who he is to Israel, but to the to the whole world, if you will. And then this other one is Jesus's baptism, where he is revealing in a fuller way who he is. So you know, January sixth celebration of the epiphany it's this big moment we've been celebrating it as a church around the planet for so so long uh and then this year on the same day man you cannot make this stuff up folks on the same day we see a scene that invites us to join into a very different kind of story a different kind of power a different statement about reality so For this episode, we're going to continue doing what we always do, which is follow the Revised Common Lectionary. But this week, we're going to expand. In this podcast, we almost always just focus on the gospel text. This week, it gives us a text out of Acts 19. So we're going to tell three counter stories, if you will, to the story that we saw this past Wednesday, January 6th. And I'll trust, and I can only trust, that the Spirit of God is going to continue working in your heart and mind and soul, just as God has been working in your heart and mind and soul long before we met and will be doing long into the future. So, I can't explain it all. We're going to talk about baptism. And I can't seal the deal on everything. But I think that when we look carefully at these stories of baptism, we'll see uh, everything from a way forward to a consolation about who we are to just this hopeful vision of um, like what life is about and where we're going. <laughs> well, I'm not promising that'll all come to fruition, but that's the that's the tenor here. I can't answer everything, but we're moving on a good trajectory. So, three stories today. First, we're going to start with a story about baptism that takes place in the Columbia River Gorge in the year 2009. Then, we'll jump to a story to the mid-50s AD. <laughs> okay, so big jump. Uh, back to a baptism story in a pagan Roman power city called Ephesus. And then from there, we'll do one more story, approximately 30 AD, uh, out in the Judean wilderness near Jerusalem. 
uh, and the waters of the Jordan River. So this is an invitation now to just start thinking together deeply uh, about this story of Jesus' baptism and this Ephesus moment, and the one we'll start with now. Scene number one, here we are. This first scene is super hot, really hot, as in 102 degrees outside. And if you can imagine, like, the drone vision video zooming in from the top, you're coming in on top of a big outdoor crowd at Rooster Rock State Park on the shores of the Columbia River. (laughs) How's that for setting? Okay, so there's all kinds of people all over the place. Folks have signed up during the prior months for this baptism festival and celebration. And here are my wife, Allie, and I, and we've been married for two years, and we have our brand newborn daughter, Annabelle. I mean, I think she's like a week old, and she's with us because we really wanted to be baptized. And I should note, I'm also part of this church in a leadership level as a youth pastor. And I've been serving as a leader in this capacity for two years. And this is going to be my baptism day. So you can think about that for a second. A close friend of mine, one of the professors from the Bible college that I've gone to, he is there to baptize me. And so there it is. We're in the cold Columbia River waters, and he reads sacred words over me, words from the early church. And I plunge below that cold water, and then I'm raised up into new life. These are some of the words that are spoken. That's the idea. And I'll tell you what. Growing up, I didn't have a concept of baptism that would tend to lead me toward this kind of scene. <laughs> uh, my folks, you know, the and not just my folks, but the, the sort of church world that I grew up in was so adamantly against the Orthodox and the Roman Catholicism and Lutheranism and all the mainline denominations. There was like a consistent dialogue about how they're all so wrong. And we were the only true believers was the idea. And then anyone who told you that you had to be baptized to be saved was, you know, a pagan idolater at best and more often in the ranks with, you know, the unwashed Philistines or something like that, the devil. So so when I'm coming into this, you know, adult life and I'm fairly newly married and, and living in church, baptism to me is kind of like, a, well, it looks, you know, legit, but it's not that important and people seem to get up in arms about it, so <laughs> I don't really know what to do. And uh, controversial and unnecessary those are probably the two biggest ways I thought about it, and who needs that in their life, you know? So I just didn't think much of it. But I was in a learning mode big time, and I, I still am, but back then this is the kind of stuff I was learning, and I and I heard teachers and other people say, uh, you know, there's just nowhere in the New Testament that shows a Christian who hasn't been baptized. And that just wouldn't make sense to them in the, in that day. And I thought, huh. You know, that was kind of compelling to me. And then I listened to the teaching in my church, and we declared that baptism, while it's not, you know, necessary for salvation, quote-unquote, it was kind of like next to necessary in terms of a public confession of faith. So 
I don't know if they intended to convey this idea or not. I'm, I'm not sure. But I walked away after listening to it for several years, walked away with the notion that for baptism on one hand, it's sort of like a Christian conjuring trick. I know that's not the good that's not a good word to say but it, in this context but it's kind of like a you know you do this thing so that when you do it sincerely then the spirit of God will be poured out onto you. And then nobody really talked about what that meant but it was a really important thing, you know. And then on the other hand, baptism was like a visual aid of sorts. It was this way to sort of publicly show a spiritual, internal, personal reality. Even now I have a tough time putting together how I thought about it. So maybe the point is just simply it was quite vague. But everyone does it, and in a sense it marks you as like you're in the group now. You're baptized, you're in the community of God, and that's you know, when you're pursuing church life and learning about Jesus, that's good. So, cool. And we did it. Allie and I, 102 degree. It was. It was hot. Oh, my goodness. We got sunburns. And then that afternoon, uh, we carried on with life as, as usual. And I think, you know, why wouldn't you? But we we felt this punctuation mark in our lives, you know, like something significant had happened. Like a commitment had been made, but looking back, I would say I was not very aware of what I was doing and what I was committing to, what was happening. And I wonder what your experience with baptism has been, what you've learned, what you've heard. One church where I served was adamant about something called believer's baptism. So outside of that way of thinking about it or that method, all other baptisms are not legitimate and they're wrong or sometimes even evil or something like that. Uh, in some churches we went to, they hated. Others really loved infant baptism baptizing babies. Others used Bible verses to debate whether the Spirit was really present, kind of like debates you hear about communion and Eucharist, or whether it was just symbolically pointed to Jesus, or, you know, is there really a presence and what's the symbolic nature? The point is, lots of debate over how you're supposed to understand baptism. One I remember constantly would come up about whether you should be rebaptized or not, and if that's wrong. On and on it seemed to go. And I saw lots of churches, lots of different kinds of baptism ceremonies and rituals. They all had something really beautiful about them, for sure. And they always left me wondering about what we're really, truly doing here. Like, what, what are we really doing? Especially... You know, when we have certificates and the sort of selfies and all the stuff that makes it feel a lot more like a, a graduation or something, like a, something like that. And, and I'm not necessarily sh casting a shadow on that, but it felt like just that. And if it was just that, it felt weird, you know. Certain slogans and mantras you get repeated over and over, and so you're in baptism festivals or ceremonies or however your tradition does it, 
and there's tears of joy and sometimes laughter and other times they're solemn and serious. And so I, I remember as I grew up just saying to myself, what in the world <laughs> is baptism all about? You know, I don't get it. It's good. It's not that good. It's peripheral. It's critical. You know, oh, man. So anyway, that's the first story. I got baptized with Allie in the Columbia River. And as it was happening, um, I was thankful and I had some good reason and believed in what I was doing. I don't regret any of it or when or anything. But I think, as you'll see, uh, I've learned quite a bit more about baptism since then. Now, that was the first story. We'll go to the second one. We have to go back to the city of Ephesus, uh, mid-50s A.D., okay? So, middle of the first century. We enter the scene with the great apostle Paul, who is on, oh, I don't, I think he's, it's his, he did a bunch of missionary journeys around the Mediterranean. I think it's his second or his third missionary journey. Anyway, he's, he's moving and it's, oh, it's so interesting. I can't, Paul went on these adventures, you know, after he met Jesus, he went out of his comfort zone, if you will, out of the land he was from on these adventures to tell people about And it's so interesting because everything he used to love was not that kind of stuff. All he hoped for was now different because he had met Jesus. Like, like his, the whole spirit of his life had changed, what he was about, what he was stoked on, what he wanted to be doing. And part of what happens, you know, he's like a well-known scholarly dude who's defending the faith in all these ways. But when he meets Jesus, rather than zealously fighting to cleanse and to purify and defend, you know, the nation of Israel as he had been taught to do, he meets Jesus in the, this, the moment, like the, the, what changes it, it's like it breaks his heart. And, and he starts going on these international adventures. Sometimes they're brutally painful. I mean, these missions that he went on were. And he goes all over so he can publicly talk about Jesus and then start churches. <laughs> and, it, you know, it makes you wonder what captivated this brilliant scholar other places in the New Testament. He'll say, I was above all my contemporaries in terms of scholarship, advancement. It was legit. And yet he does a full 180. Later he'll say, all that stuff I now look at as loss compared to what I've found in this life with Jesus. So anyway, we're going to, here's the scene. This is story number two. Paul in Ephesus, and it has everything to do with baptism. And the scene specifically where John is baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus says that it is necessary for him, for Jesus, to also do this baptism of repentance. Think on that for a little bit. That'll throw you, that's a little, you know, monkey wrench in the cog right there. Because what is Jesus repenting from? You know, makes you wonder if there's something more to the word repentance uh, than meets the average pop culture American eye. So how could, you know, how could a sinless God have need to 
do a baptism of repentance kind of thing, right? Um, indeed, I think in the passage we read in John chapter 1, and that would have been maybe Advent week 3, something like that, John the Baptist, he asks, what's wrong with you? You know, Why are you asking me to baptize? Remember, Jesus comes up to him and he's like, hey, John, you got to baptize me. And John's like, what the heck I do? I'm not doing that, you weirdo. You're the one who should be baptizing me. And that, I think, is actually a huge clue. We don't get it at first glance. And I think it's confusing. And unfortunately, that confusion turns many people off. And then we sort of find satisfaction in debating about all the how-tos of baptism, but we miss what it, what it means. Okay, so you can sense from the first story that was my case. But here's the jam. As I learned what baptism is in, in the context of the scriptures, then it started to come alive. And that's our goal here. So here's our next scene. Paul in Ephesus, and this comes from Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, which I'll read now uh, from the New Living Translation. Acts 19, verse 1. While Apollos was in Corinth, so Apollos is a church leader who's leading in Ephesus, but he's rolled out to Corinth on the other side of the bay, if you will. And um, Paul has traveled. Now we pick it back up. So Apollos is out of town, and Paul's coming in. Acts 19.1. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast where he found several believers. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Verse 3. Well, then what baptism did you experience? He asked. And they replied, well, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin, but John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. Verse 5, as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then, when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. All right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so before we talk about this story, I want to make a few points about what it's not, because they kind of come up here. It does not, for example, appear that right at the end there, it says there were about 12 men in all. I don't think that that's got a symbolic nature to it. My head goes right there, but I've, I've looked into it, and I, I can't see that there's a symbolism there, especially with the about, you know, there's approximately 12 people there. Then the other one is it's not an instruction for how all baptisms are supposed to happen. And that can, sometimes you folks will pull this out of context and be like, ooh, here's, it says it in the Bible, so it has to always happen this way. Well, there's all kinds of different pictures of baptism in the Bible. This is one of them, and it is in a really unique situation. So this isn't like the normative rule. They're all supposed to look like this, okay? And then sometimes, too, it gets picked up on, notice how he speaks, or they speak in tongues after he lays hands on them. There's a sense of sometimes folks will say, 
well, you don't have the Holy Spirit for real until you get a second blessing or, you know, you know that that has happened if you're able to speak in tongues, that kind of thing. And I'm not arguing against that or for it. I'm just saying this verse alone does not make that point at all. Uh, this is a unique scenario. And here, the speaking in tongues is very literally speaking another known language so you can tell neighbors who don't know your native language, you know, you can tell them the story of Jesus. So that was a big story in Acts up to this point, the way that the Spirit of God helped people, you know, be able to speak mutually with their neighbors in their own language. And that's been happening across the Mediterranean world at this point. So that's a big deal. But that's what's happening, and it is happening, and it's really interesting. We do a whole other podcast just on that point alone. Uh, But what's not good is to take that part of this story and say, here's how we now know it has to happen for everybody. Otherwise, it's not true. You know, that that would be very much... uh, forcing something upon the New Testament texts. Okay, so what is it? What do we have here? Well, I think it's a picture of Paul helping people see what we need to see right now, like this week, today, (laughs) as a church and as a country and as a people. And and listen to what he says, verse 2, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? He asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. But this question in two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? It's really interesting. And and we have to break this down a little bit because in the New Living Translation where we're reading, it says their reply is, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And I think that's pushing it a little bit. So it's it seems weird because it gives you the impression that the idea of God's Spirit to them was novel. You know, we haven't even heard that there is, like, that one exists or something like that. That doesn't seem tenable in in for a few reasons. One is they're called disciples, and they're disciples of John, and John is Jewish, and John has been talking about the Spirit for a good bit. So if you roll back to Luke chapter 13 in the baptism scene, John answered their questions. I'm reading now verbatim, John, Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered their questions, the people coming out to him in the wilderness, saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I will not even be worthy to be a slave or a servant and untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. Okay, so John is aware of the Holy Spirit, and it seems to be part of his very public teaching. I think it's unlikely to to a high level um, that they've never heard about the Spirit at all. So I think a translation that holds tighter to the Greek would go something like this. We have not heard if the Spirit is. Okay, can you feel that difference? We have not heard if the Spirit is. Well, again, now you might say, does that mean they're asking if the Spirit exists? And I would say in the context, no, that's not what they're saying. Think of Jesus' own words about living water 
which we find in John 7, 39, uh, when he said, living water, because he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him, but the Spirit had not yet been given. Okay, so that's written by John the Apostle in chapter 7, verse 39. But he's recording Jesus' own words, and we have this sense, you know, way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he's already talking about the Spirit. So I think the idea in Acts 19.2 is not, whoa, there's someone called the Spirit of God we never even knew. Oh, cool. I don't think it's that. I think it's much more, we have not heard that the Spirit is now here, present, given, or poured out, that kind of idea. We have not heard if the Spirit is, if the Spirit is here, I think is a good way to say it. It's almost like, what? Oh my goodness, that thing we've been hoping for has happened? Awesome. Let's start this adventure now, you know? It's like, okay, that's good. We've been waiting for that news, so... I don't know if that's quite what it was, but I don't think they were unaware of the Spirit's existence. I think it's much more likely they're surprised that the Spirit has become manifest in their real world. All right? And I think it's it's interesting, I think, again, about this week. Um, we have, in this moment, folks who are calling themselves disciples, but something about the way they believe is missing. And I think that's important in this biblical context. It feels like this story talks about a need for expansion, not necessarily significant correction. But in principle, the sense of not knowing all that we need to or lacking still, I think about what I watched this week with flags and posters that had the name Jesus on them held high up in the middle of an angry mob where people died, human beings died. And I wondered about the Spirit's presence in that moment and what the will of God was in the lives of the people I saw on TV. And I wondered on Wednesday, January 6th, Epiphany, what story these fellow human beings, miracles of God, you know, every human being I see, every human being you see, a miracle of God, a miracle of life in your presence. And as I watched them waving these flags that said the name of Jesus, I wondered who or what they were believing into. You enter into what you believe, don't you? We seem to join our very self with, or or we participate in, the things that we believe into. So, Paul asked them a question, you know, in in Acts 19, verse 3. He says, well, then what baptism did you experience? Okay? So, they've said, you know, he said, we found disciples. And uh, he said, what about the Holy Spirit? And they said, say what now? And he says, well, if you don't know what I'm talking about there, that the Holy Spirit has come, then we got to get down to what's going on here. What's going on here? <laughs> Verse 3, what kind of baptism are we talking about? You know. And they replied, well, it was the baptism of John. Notice here he doesn't say, hey, guys, were you baptized? He knows that they must have been. 
You know, he assumes it. It's kind of like when you know somebody in the army and you, you soon say, hey, where did you do basic training? You don't say, did you do basic training? You just know they did. You ask, where did you do it? So here, you know, he, he's, he assumes, okay, you call yourself a disciple. That means you've been baptized. So talk to me about your baptism. And they say, well, it was John's baptism. Now, that's interesting. He, he can hear that there's no sense of the Spirit's presence in their description. So he's wondering if they've actually picked up the heartbeat of real Jesus Christianity. You know, that's, that's the thing I look at when I see some of this, um, what appears to be very power-lusting and sometimes even hateful kinds of ideas that will be championed. It's very interesting. Now, again, in the story in Acts 19, it's not a correction. And I would say the story I'm thinking about in the television this week would be more of a correction. Um, but the similar idea is, where is the spirit of Christ or the Christos, the Messiah? Because they don't have any mention of the spirit, and Paul is picking up on this and, and the fact that they say, well, we were baptized into the baptism of John. Okay. All right. Well, now we have to open that door. What does that even mean? How is John's baptism different? And then why is it not enough? Especially because Jesus himself seems to receive John's baptism. <laughs> you know, so you're like, uh, Okay, I'm confused now. Paul says it's not enough. Jesus himself says it must be done. We got to spell this out. Okay, okay. Here's where I don't think that you're just you're just never going to get very far with a biblical Google search for sentences, you know, that you can pull out that have the word baptism in them and then just try to be like, "Oh, here's what it means based on all this this proof texting." Baptism starts in the Bible way before the New Testament. And it starts in a story about a people who are walking through the great sea of reeds. More often we call it the Red Sea. Way back in Genesis. Okay? So that's that's where the story of baptism and what baptism means begins. So I said we're going to tell three stories here, but really I guess it's four because we have to go back to the early ancient story of Israel and how it starts. So back in Genesis, you know, we've got Abraham and he meets God and God promises him a land and even that he would inherit the whole world, you know. And and so there's this uh, massive, crazy sort of defining promise, like from the giving of that promise, everything in Abraham's life now will be oriented completely around that promise. All right, but then famine strikes and Abraham's family moves down to Egypt in a decision to survive, but they sell themselves into Egyptian slavery. And now they're under this dark overlord for hundreds of freaking years <laughs> until Moses, the great prophet, the patriarch, is sent to the rescue. You can't miss that point. I'm, I didn't know that at first, but just the way that 
The famine caused them. They made a decision to survive, but in doing so, chose a kind of slavery. Well, here we are now, hundreds of years later, and they've been enslaved forever, as far as they can tell. And Moses, the great prophet and the patriarch, he comes, he's sent to the rescue. And then they go through the waters of the Red Sea, don't they? And that right there is the first baptism. Every other baptism sort of is paradigmatically linked back to that. Do you see it? They pass through the waters on their way out of slavery. We're leaving a world of slavery and entering something totally new. And then they get to Mount Sinai, where God gives them his law, the Torah. And then after the giving of the law... They're sent out on this adventure that's going to lead to the great promised land. So their inheritance that God has said, here's where I'm taking you. Milk, honey, it's going to be great. Now, Paul refers to all of this in the same sequence as I've just told it in Romans 4 through 8. And so this this I you know this whole idea first in the way that Paul links it. I first learned this from uh, Tom Wright from N.T. Wright, who showed this. So I'll walk you through it. Notice in Romans 4, you can you can pull out your New Testament and pause as I go through this and just read chapter 4, 5, 6. But in Romans 4, notice Paul points to Abraham, and he reminds the readers, the church in Rome, we think there's like 6 to 10 uh, house churches in Rome at the time he's writing, um, he reminds them that Abraham is the founder of their nation, their faith, and he points to the promise that they would inherit the land. But at this point in the story, some Jews are already seeing that he's talking about not just this strip of land, but the whole, the whole world, the creation. So chapter 4, promise to Abraham about one day inheriting the whole world. Then in Romans 5, there's this sort of summary and synthesis of the whole Adam and Christ story. But then comes Romans 6, and it feels like we're talking to Hebrews who have just packed up their tents and started out from Mount Sinai. Okay, so now, if you can imagine that, now writing to Christians, Paul will say, you were slaves, you used to be, but you're not anymore. You know, well, how do you know? Well, you've come through the water, and that means that slavery is not your future. You truly have started your adventure toward freedom. Okay, so that's in six. You you were slaves, but you're not slaves anymore. Your baptism through the waters, you've come through the water. Okay, then in Romans 7, Paul is writing more or less about arriving at Mount Sinai, if you will, receiving this law. Now here N.T. Wright says, only this time the law becomes a big puzzle, and you're wondering what it's going to do to you. This is Romans 7. And then by Romans 8, you're on the adventure. But rather than being led by a pillar of fire and smoke, like in the old days, now you're led by the Spirit. And that means that you're on the way home to your inheritance. You see the link in those two major paradigm stories of how, like, who we are, where we're going, what this is about? I tell you what, 
if I had known any of that when I was sweating in 102 degree heat in the sun on the side of the Columbia River, that baptism that I had would have been far more meaningful to me. I'm not bummed, though. I'm just glad that I'm learning it now. And I, I think we have a responsibility to teach other people what this is about. So if you follow the way that Paul is putting this together, you see that in his he's retelling the Exodus story in a different way. In this passing through the waters idea of baptism, it can never again be seen as sort of a a magical moment where a weird spiritual whatever happens or whatever. And that's kind of how I thought about it. It's like, uh, it's important mostly, or I don't know, just like we just got to do it. And it's just, it's so much not that. The human being who's baptized, it's a, this is a punctuated moment where you are leaving metaphorical Egypt, slavery, the world of slavery to darkness and death that you were born into. And notice, in Egypt, you're a slave to sin, not only in the way that fundamentalism tells us, which is you're sinful, you dirty, you know. It's not just that you're a slave to like your interpersonal sin, but you've become a slave to the nation itself. The evil way that the country works and operates sucks the life out of you and your neighbors to the point where you, like the Hebrews of old, cry out, just help me, get out of here, I just want out, (laughs) you know? So, okay, you remember what happened almost immediately after the Hebrew folks made it out of the country? Moses comes, the plagues come, all that stuff, they go through the waters, they're set free, they're out in the wilderness, and what do they want? They want to go back. They start complaining. This sucks, Moses. Why did you bring us out here? You're stupid. (laughs) Why? Because even though slavery was awful, at least they had their shelter and their stew in the kettle for supper. This new world and this new way of God, it was unknown, and therefore it was very difficult to trust. The other way was terrible, but you knew what was going to happen. So listen, they did not really believe into their freedom, those that were complaining and saying, just take us back to Egypt. Much of the ways of living that they learned in slave land ended up continuing into what should have been a free life. And God says, that's not going to work, folks, especially in terms of where we're going where nothing related to slavery or oppression is ever going to exist. So in a sense, they're set free, but they kind of want to keep their shackles on for familiarity. And Moses is trying to help them live up to, or let's say into, their baptism, if, if you will. Paul writes about this irony in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And he uses this notion to challenge Christians. He says to them, you pass through the waters, you've been baptized. Don't you see the reality of what happened in your baptism, who you are, and where you're going? And Paul's warning believers who point to a baptism and claim in freedom in God, but don't live into the Spirit in whom they were baptized. Because in the wilderness, 
back in the Hebrew days. God had to throw off those who rebelled against this freedom. So Paul is pointing back to those moments, and he's saying, be careful, pay attention. You're part of a crew who's going somewhere. Are you walking with the folks? Or are you trying to go back to Egypt? And here's why. If you're baptized, it's not just about your guilt or your personal. You, you, you stepped into belonging to a people. And don't hear this in any kind of uh, cruel way at all, but encouraging. You belong to somebody now and, 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 and in a real way. And this people, this church, it's a growing team of adventurers who are all together moving toward a very new creation. And baptism marks the beginning of that. So if you're baptized, as N.T. Wright says, you jolly well better get on with that. <laughs> I love that. Language. Because of who you are. Not because you're in trouble or whatever. Because of who you are. And he adds this. He says, I think Paul is talking about status. You have to do the math. You have to add it up. I am in Christ. Christ died to sin. Therefore, even though sin comes and actually whispers in my ear and shouts at me and lures me and all the rest of it, I can turn around and say, get lost. I'm not a slave anymore. I'm not going back to Egypt anymore. Go away. When you root the entire concept of baptism into the Exodus narrative, then it's, it's the ritual now finds real, real meaning. And I think this is the central key. Baptism marks a complete change of ideas, a, a total transformation, not a tweak, not a reformation, a total overhaul. So like many of the freed slaves that were following Moses, I did not really have a complete change of ideas and ways, if you will, after passing through the waters. I had a, a major moment and a photo, and I got a baptism certificate that said I had finished a traditional graduation kind of thing. But I continued to think about my life pretty much the same as I had before. My understanding of who I was was almost nil. My understanding of baptism had not been rooted in the story that we've just described here. Not at all. As I noted, it was rooted more in a contemporary controversy over who believes the right thing about it. Today, though, I'm starting to see how true it is to say that Christianity is a complete change of ideas. And that, my friends, takes us back to Acts 19. So remember the story, Paul, the disciples who were baptized, and it says they were baptized into John's baptism. And remember how Paul said, you know, that's not bad, but it's not adequate. Verse 3, then what baptism did you experience, he asked, and they replied, the baptism of John. And Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. Note there, there's a difference in his idea between repenting and then also believing in. So John called them to repent from, 
but he said later you'll believe in this other one. You can think on that. One is saying perhaps no to or turning away from something, and the other is saying yes to or turning towards something. But if Jesus wasn't there yet, he's saying all he can do is say the one who's coming. Okay, so I think it sounds weird, but if it looks like repentance on its own, it just is not enough. It's a prerequisite. So it's kind of like if you're heading east, but you need to go west, the first thing you have to do is turn around. (laughs) But if all you do is turn around, you're still not going anywhere. You're not going the wrong way anymore, which is great. But you see what I'm getting at. I think this basic contrast is at the heart of the difference. John's baptism of repentance is about turning around and starting something new. Or perhaps, like the Hebrews at the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, uh, it's about leaving Egypt slave world behind and saying no to slavery and yes to a new world. But the next step is another thing. And that another thing is what happens in the story. The next step after they go through their baptism is receiving a way or the law and then the journey toward the promised or the promised land. So in the Old Testament, you see a wide range of meanings for the word repentance. Okay. Unfortunately, I think most of us imagine pretty quickly that repenting is something like a moment of sorrowful uh, apology. I'm sorry, and I really mean it. And it's sort of that's what repenting is. Be he needs to be more repentant, or whatever. And and I think whatever truth there is in that, I think it's pretty inadequate. Here's why. God himself is often repenting in the Old Testament. You know, so right away we're like, wait, that that doesn't fit with the description I just gave. Deuteronomy will speak of Israel turning to Yahweh with her whole heart. If they did this, they would be forgiven and restored. So repenting there is turning toward Yahweh. And in those terms, this would mean a return to the Shema their great central formative prayer. Every Jewish person is supposed to pray every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So repenting is always a sense of wherever you're at, off of that, you're turning back to that. It's turning back to this kind of love for God alone with everything you've got. And this kind of thing is what needs to happen in the Old Testament in order to return to the land, the inheritance. Okay, so we're thinking about repenting and thinking about why it is that John's baptism of repentance is not enough. And we're saying, well, let's really see it in the Old Testament. You see it as turning back toward this full heart love for God every part of your life. But you also see it in the sense of you have to do it before, or this is the way to full restoration. Perhaps you could think of it like there's this God is always restoring, and you won't 
enjoy that restoration until you tap into that life source of God. And here's how you do it. You tap out of the other sources of fake life the world offers. So, repenting is turning back to that kind of love. And this is what you see in the prophets. Jeremiah talks this way, uh, you need to repent before or if we are to be restored, that kind of thing. Okay, well, that is the beginning of the ministry of this human being, Jesus from Nazareth. He's the new Moses, and he's coming to an oppressed people. And so he joins with them in this baptism of repentance, if you will. Like Moses, he comes, he says, we're not doing any of this anymore. I will lead you through the waters. So I think that's part of the reason Jesus takes on this baptism. Again, it's not he has some sort of personal sin, guilt he has to assuage, but instead he's doing what Moses did. He's leading the people through the waters into a complete, a complete renewal of life. So that takes us to our final Bible text for today, which is Mark chapter 1. And you recognize we were in Mark chapter 1, same scene, back in Advent week 2. I love how the lectionary keeps us on a passage so we can really flesh it out over some time and let it sink into our soul. Mark chapter 1, we're back to the story where God, if you remember, the verb was he tears the heavens asunder. And the Spirit comes down as, as like a dove, and it's this moment where Jesus meets a messenger, a prophet, if you will. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. This messenger was John the Baptist, and he was in the wilderness, and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Verse 5. All of Judea, including all of the people of Jerusalem, went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Verse 6. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. Verse 7. John announced, Someone is coming soon who is greater than I am so much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God, again. <laughs> and look at now, we've come full circle, haven't we? The people back in Ephesus, those 12 or so people that Paul engages with, have been baptized in John's baptism, they said which Mark and other gospel writers tell us is a baptism of repentance. And that fits all of the Old Testament pictures we've looked at here. But this being baptized into the Spirit thing, this seems to be the critical piece that Paul says is a make-it-or-break-it reality, almost like the thing that John was doing was so, 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 so good, and not digging on that at all, but don't think that he was the one we've been waiting for, the Messiah. In fact, he himself is adamant, I'm not the Messiah. That one is Jesus. And he's not only breaking us out of slavery, but as we pass through the waters of baptism, he pours out his spirit, and this spirit is our guide to the new creation. 
the promised world. I know it sounds a little bit wacky, but think about it like this. Here's here's an attempt to sort of tie it all together because I'm I'm so compelled by the way that this plays out with the Hebrews in the in the Exodus narrative. Jesus comes and, you know, and he says, I'm making a new covenant with you. That's, you know, Moses had this covenant back on Sinai. Jesus has this new covenant with us. And then back then, the, the God himself is leading them to the promised land. And now it's the spirit of God leading us to the new creation. And I, I want to tie it all together. And sort of, a, I was talking with Allie yesterday around a campfire in our backyard, and it it just sort of fit together in a certain way. But before I do, there's one more thing I, we have to establish about repenting, um, because we've already said that it means the sort of thing Israel needs to, in the Old Testament. This is what you have to do to be restored. If you're going to be healed, if she's going to be healed as a nation and fixed and brought back into the promise of God, you've got to turn away from what the world has taught you. A more colloquial way and common way to say this, this repenting, I think it means that you're giving up any more trust in the way of the world, which is always to revolt. That's the way of the world, to revolt and to fight and to try to win over against the other. So, repenting is leaving that way of the world. I recall our podcast from two weeks ago about Trinity, uh, and then last week about becoming infinite learners. And in both of those cases, we're seeing this sort of deep root of real power, strong power. And that's mutual love for one another in the same way we see it in Trinity. And remember, the whole point is endless deferring to one another or self-sacrificing for the well-being of the other. And then the other is always doing the same to you, and all are in this state of, of being individual but in perfect unified love, which is the source of power, the power to create life. What Jesus calls eternal life, that's his vision of power. So the notice the world's vision of power is control and resource. Jesus is eternal life. So the love between Father, Logos, and Spirit is our most fundamental or essential way of living. And returning to this kind of love or to the core heartbeat of the Shema, love the Lord your God, love, right? And then Jesus adds in his creed, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is 100% the opposite of the way of the world. And it's the opposite, therefore, of revolutionary zeal, okay? A sense of zealousness, intensity to revolt and to get what I want at the cost of another. Uh, notice in Mark chapter one fifteen. this is a few verses down, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news. So 
repenting of your sins, again, from our perspective, often in cultural Christianity of modern America, we think that means say sorry for the individual bad things that you did. So you can individually go to a, a posh eternity. And in the context Mark's talking about, it's turn away from the entire way of the world and believe in the good news that you don't have to live in that empire ever again. Matthew four seventeen. from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The idea being step out of this old way and into what you've always been waiting for, which is the establishment of God's rule in the world. That's the moment that's beginning in Jesus's baptism. See, in the fundamentalist sort of pop culture evangelicalism kind of world I grew up in, we just were taught to read this as you better stop with all those nasty vices you have because God is coming to torture everybody who doesn't do it. But I think if you read it with the first century world where this good news first breaks, you know, you see something much greater and it's simpler and it's more true. Uh, For example, Josephus, I mentioned him once in a while. He's a Jewish historian from that day. He tells a story about somebody trying who has a plot to kill him. You know, Josephus was, <laughs> I guess people wanted to kill him. And, and he exposes it, and he stops the guy, and he says to him, hey, and the quote is, you need to repent and believe in me. And this was a way that that previous plotter, could find or prove a new loyalty, and Josephus would take it easy on him. The deep directive, if you think about what he's asking this person to do, is to abandon revolutionary zeal completely. He's asking him to give up whatever it was he thought he would gain by harming another, and and then he's to believe into him or to follow in his way. Well, certainly that kind of idea is the context behind Jesus's announcement of the kingdom. I think if you, if you're listening weekly to the podcast, you know, this is a recurring theme. How the messianic, what, what people expected the Messiah to do was something more like the recent, well, semi-recent Maccabean revolts where you have a war that overthrows the oppressive empire over you. And there's just a sense of zealousness for revolt in this day. You have one of the groups of the Jewish community, the Essenes, and they're dedicated to cleansing and purifying the temple. They see the corruption, and they want to do something. They want to stand up and speak truth to power. They want to throw out all the corruptors and all the wicked ones. And they are, and notice here, they're compelled. They're motivated, they're driven by a desire to not be in the way of the world. They don't like the corruption that they see. However, something is still missing. Repentance, in the way Jesus is calling for it, and the way John the Baptist called for it, it is a call to let go of our, our revolutionary inclinations. See, you you can't say, I see the corruption, I'll use the way of the world in a better way than others have. <laughs> it's, I see the corruption, 
and then you, there's no way to use that way of the world positively at all. For those who know the Lord of the Rings trilogy, that's the concept behind the ring, isn't it? Uh, everybody's like, I, well, if I have it, I'll be able to do it the right way, right? If I have the power, I'll be the one who can wield it for the right things. And, and the dark Lord Sauron is like, yeah, keep trying. It's just not possible. That's the old way. That's what we turn away from. So repentance is leaving our revolutionary inclination. And that's what troubled me so much this past Wednesday. A vision for revolting, for forcing, for using a world's understanding of power to get something achieved, as we like to say, to get something done. And I live in Portland, Oregon. Rioting is like our our favorite pastime here now. <laughs> I've thought we had another one last night, and at least it was in, out in one of the suburbs. And I've thought the same things with every protest and every riot, every call for for taking up the banner of earthly power in some newer, more scientifically based or socially responsible, some new enlightened kind of way. We'll do the same thing our enemies do, but we'll do it with more research and better intention, you know? And and it's amazing because John's baptism, that's a way of saying no to the old way completely. Looking around, listening around, and, and deciding, I'm done with this nonsense. I'm done with that way that the world teaches me to understand life. I'm done with the way the world teaches me to talk about or think about what the good life is. That's a great question to ask yourselves and your children as you watch television or shows. Before you begin, just say, hey, what is this show inviting us to see the good life as? You know, if you're living in slavery under Pharaoh, then he's given you a picture of the best kind of life you can have, you know? And you don't really have much of an option other than that. You live in a slave land. What other world would there be? And and it sucks. So everyone is saying, you know, I'm constantly busy as a slave, and I'm constantly depressed and I'm constantly worried and anxious, and I'm always afraid about whether I'm going to please my masters enough. And I don't possibly know how I can make more bricks, and yet today again we got a memo that says we have to up our production. It said more bricks, more bricks. And I just don't know what to do, but at least Pharaoh gives me a home or an apartment, or at least I've got stew for my stew pot. But by and large, this totally sucks being in slavery. So we cry, we sigh, we scream, God, help us. It's a way of life that we kind of chose, like we we have to do this to survive. But now we're stuck in this under a dark master. And after we've been crying out to God for what looks like forever, he shows up in humanity. And he says, with the power of God, folks, we're getting out of slavery. And the punctuated moment for those who want to get out of slavery is passing through the waters. So John's baptism of repentance is at the very least a recognition that we want to entirely bow out of the old world slavery system and repent or turn around. And so we depart from Egypt, as it were, and that's wonderful. That's the repentance. But... 
just getting out of Egypt was not the whole story, was it? They, they didn't just get through the Red Sea and now we're good. They needed God himself present with them. First, he meets them on the mountain and gives them, you know, fire on the mountain. And he brings them this, here's how to live. This will guard you until the coming of the, the great day when the Messiah comes. But this will guard you. And then he's with them in the, the, the pillar of the fire and the smoke. So they don't just need to get out of the old way. They do need to do that. But now they also need a new guide. Because it's not the old way sucks and now I know best on my own. Because that's actually part of the old way. <laughs> I know best on my own. <laughs> that's how the old way started, quite frankly, you know. So we need God himself to guide us, to be present with us, to guide us into the new kingdom. And it's a new world that's of full of freedom and total peace. Peace of the heart, as David Toth says. In that sense, then the water, if you will, wasn't enough. They also needed the guiding God to give them a new law and a new way of life and a new direction to the journeying place of the promised land. So Jesus, I think, is, is he meets us in our American consumer slave system, which is destroying slave masters and slaves equally. Don't ever think your slave masters are actually winning. That's what the world wants you to think, wanting you to become like them. But they're dying just as much as the slaves are dying. The whole system, you know, everybody goes to a grave. <laughs> so it all kind of sucks for us. And he says, don't you want out of this death system? And we quickly say, yes, I do. Just like they said to Moses, I'll follow you. And so we repent and we turn. But now begins the journey into this new creation. And we need the Spirit of God to guide. So John's baptism of repentance was not enough. So Paul lays his hands on so the Spirit of God comes. That's not a magical work where if you touch somebody, it's not, it's not like electricity conducting. That's a specific moment where the New Testament wants us to see there was more to that Christian message from Jesus. They had only gotten the, the first glance, the first part. It's almost like you can turn away from all of the crap of this world and, or, or say no more to the brutality and the sin. You hate it. You're done with the darkness. And you can try to refine or remove this or that evil idea that the popular world is trying to remove right now. Notice the evils the world wants to remove, are, they come and go, and the deepest evils never are popular. They're never something people at a wide scale want to remove. Think on that. So evil moves in this way, and if you say, I want no more of this, but the problem is this. If you say, I don't like corruption and I don't like evil, I'm through the Red Sea, I've, I'm repent. I'm out of that, but now everybody has a different opinion on which law or which authority structure will finally show us how we're supposed to live, you know, how we're supposed to understand our gender, how we're supposed to understand ethnicity, how we're supposed to uh, agree on history, or how we're supposed to see 
observational sciences, you know, and and then the idea is once everybody is together and everybody agrees, then finally we'll have peace. The problem is you can have these well intentions and ironically still destroy and consume each other. Why? Because I think we're still fueled by the ultimate destroyer, which is a revolutionary zeal. We, we, we want to try to say, no, I know the right way. No, I know the right way. Didn't Eve express revolutionary zeal when she revolted from the way of God and trusted her senses about how to get something good done? Notice she wasn't trying to do wicked, terrible, evil. She was trying to do good, to become more knowledgeable. And she was doing it on her terms. That's the critical key. When the repentance turns into, uh, the baptism moves you into the life of the Spirit, you're saying, I'm not living on my terms anymore, but the terms of, of God himself. So, as we've seen in 2020, certainly here now, just in the first days of 2021, everybody seems to have a different idea about what we're all supposed to believe or agree with based on this sort of childish notion that if everybody's like me, then everybody will finally be better. So we end up in a constant cycle. It's like an ancient cycle through everything, through every country, everywhere. And big and small, it can be in your company, it can be in your church, it can be in your home. The cycle of trying to dominate over the other. And we think if I'm the one who everybody is bowing to or agreeing with, then all will finally be well. Even though Israel hated life under Pharaoh and the way he lived with people, it won't be long before, after they're set free, before their way of life is eerily similar. Trusting resources, using people for their own benefit, trying to control others, condemning and rejecting some, treating them as garbage while, you know, overly glorifying others. And it, and it, guess what? It takes them out of the way of life. So they die and are consumed in the same way Egypt killed them. And notice, they don't need just a tweak or a reform. They need new creation. And Jesus is saying, I think, we're not going to keep doing that same kind of thing, but now we're just going to be nicer about it. He's saying, no, this is a totally new creation. You've got to be born, uh, reborn, born again. It's going to be a way of living together in the love of Christ himself and his spirit. And the spirit's way to a promised forever world. And, it's, and, and this is the way it, we get there if we learn to defer to one another in mutuality. And here's where it really lands in my own life and maybe in your life too. You cannot be mutual with others if you don't know who you are. And if you don't have an understanding of yourself. And you can't give of yourself like Jesus does if you don't even know what that is. So if the whole idea of living in the Spirit is to live with yourself, loving and deferring to the other self, loving your neighbor as your own self, you can't do that if you have no concept of yourself, right? 
And many of us have lived every day of our lives in American cultural slavery. So we were never even taught to have a self. Yourself is what you accomplish and what other people think of you. You you just do whatever master says and then believe whatever master says about you. We were trained at home to do whatever mom and dad say. Otherwise, you'll be punished severely. Not everybody. I'm not, you know, railing on mom and dad anywhere. We're all learning this together, but it's it's like... I I was I was never invited to love a good life. I was just threatened with punishment to not mess up. You know? So it's a slave mentality I was given from the beginning. Do what you're told or you'll be punished. Then you go to college maybe or some tech school wherever you go, next job, and if you don't make the grade, your future is supposedly punished. You get out of college, you desperately need a job to pay down that enslaving debt, so you do whatever your employers say and work to keep your resume and your credentials and your reputation stellar, and all of it. You've never really thought of who you are. We often don't even think about it. And then when we think about giving of ourselves, if we're going to say, well, how do I live in the Spirit?, we really don't know how to think much more of ourselves other than our our resources like time and money. So now we start to say, well, giving of yourself is giving your time and your money. And many folks just live right there. They say, okay, well, as long as I tithe to the church and I volunteer in a ministry program, that's my selflessness box. And then average day-to-day life is defined by the average way of Egypt, the way of the world, the way things work. Which means you don't have a new life defined and led by the Spirit. So what is he giving so abundantly? He's giving himself who he is in God, and it's a gift to everybody around him. So your selfhood starts right there, just like it does with Jesus at the baptism. You're my beloved son, God says, in whom I'm well pleased. We start there. I have nothing to fear and nothing to lose for real because I belong to God and I live in his eternal kingdom, which is more powerful than any human movement or tribe or nation, his country, his kingdom. And then when I live that way, I can live like Jesus. Jesus doesn't demand anything from people, though he invites and commands and directs but I hope you can hear what I'm saying there. He, for instance, with Peter, Peter believes wrongly and is all kinds of goofy. Jesus doesn't say, you clean up your act before I spend time with you or promise you eternity. It's something different than what we think. Uh, Jesus doesn't demand a Roman police officer, you know, part of that racist, corrupt government empire the Roman Empire, he doesn't demand that that Roman centurion stop doing what he's doing before he says, I see great faith in you. And he doesn't force the Syrophoenician woman. She's worshiping pagan gods. She's not even a part of Israel. She's kind of in the social world on the lower class in their whole world. He doesn't force her to agree with him before he loves her. He gives himself to her and he brings healing into her life. And he does this all around his whole life and ministry in dozens of ways, just like those same examples. And people thought he was just insane. 
There's no way to live like that and fit into the old system. He'll say, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Remember, they trusted the old system. They just wanted Jesus to cleanse it or to purify it. We know how things work. We know what power's about. We know what we need. We just need to bad people out of here. And Jesus is saying, that, my friends, is your problem. There are no losers or lessers. There are no worthless ones that can be moved out of your life with contempt or threat of law. Only love can compel real life. It's not cleansing out of all the scum that you call scum. It's learning all of you together to live in mutual love. So his whole way of life is certainly bound to a law. He'll, Jesus will say, I'm not doing away with the law. I'm fulfilling all that the law was teaching. And that means he's, he's loving God with all of his heart and mind and strength, and he's loving neighbor as himself. This is truly, as Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I know that we don't instinctively want to live this way, this self-giving, loving, deferring to the other, not harming your enemy, but praying for and loving your enemy, as Jesus says. He's not saying that, do that or I'm going to torture you. He says, you do that because you don't have to hate them. And hating people sucks, and it kills you just as much. He says, you can actually love, and you say, well, that's not instinctively smart because people, especially enemies, will take advantage of that. If I defer, then I'm not trying to be in control, and I'll be constantly terrified. And Jesus is saying, no, actually it's the opposite, because your source of life is not coming from the idea that you need to be in control. So you can voice your ideas and your opinions, and should, they come from your selfhood. In a true sense, it's necessary for you to voice them and engage and be with others, not to just sit quietly. In the spirit of Christ, though, you don't also need your way to be honored or respected or glorified for you to be at peace as David says, in your heart, or to be happy. It's okay if you don't go my way. That doesn't bother me. And we don't like that because we're like, oh my gosh, it's too vulnerable. I'm going to lose. The world will take advantage of me. And Jesus says, but do this anyway because of the promise. I swear it's like the Hebrews out in the wilderness where it's like, what are we doing out here? This makes no sense. And God's just saying, stay with me. Learn to trust me. I could just totally see it. And then there it was, the promise of milk and honey and a space to call their own. They could have this. God was moving them toward that destiny. But here, remember, Moses is is pre-Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is now saying, you actually need more than milk and honey to live. Humankind needs more than bread alone, will be the way he puts it. And control over evil is a good thing, yes, but that's God's jam. That's not yours. It's his long promise from Genesis 3, the promise that God has given. He's always said he'll eradicate evil and death. So this journey 
toward a new creation will not include you and I forcing other people to stop being evil. Jesus never forced anybody to stop being evil. Instead, he appealed to infinite love. That was what started the church. And it's continued to grow for 2020. Well, you get the point. 2,000 years. <laughs> and it's, it. we just, uh, it's amazing how we, we don't trust it. But it's not amazing. It makes sense to me. Because I don't either. It's so hard to. But I think that's it. That's where that's where baptism in the spirit gets really powerful. Really truly saying, okay, I'm I'm now a part of a people adventuring into a new world that's gonna be like this. And the way it's gonna be like this is when everybody lives that way. So we start living that way now. The spirit like the pillar of smoke and fire that leading that, you know, motley crew of Hebrews to a small piece of property on the Mediterranean. In a similar way, the Spirit is leading the church into a global property in which all human beings will ultimately defer to one another and to God in love. Every knee shall bow. So while living that way right now is dangerous, Jesus uses the words, you're going to have to bear a cross like I have, in fact, it may cost you everything as it did Jesus. We know that it's not perpetuating the same cycle we see all the time. We're literally, truly bowing out of it. And we know then that the hope is the resurrection of the world into a world where 100% of humanity lives that way. And that, my friends, is a vision for the future that began thousands of years ago. And decade after decade, every century since, God delivers that promise more and more. We've moved closer to that reality. And then when Jesus shows up in this baptism scene, he joins humanity in the baptism of repentance through the waters, just like Moses led through the waters, which is not in this case about his individual sins being forgiven. He had no sin. But it's like it's like he's saying, I'm 100% done with revolutionary zeal, with this way of the world against fellow humankind, and I am now forevermore baptized into the Spirit. I love how in Jesus' baptism, the Spirit also comes, and it's the heaven and the creation connecting together forever. The baptism ritual then, therefore, I think it can be practiced by many people in many different ways. But as Acts 19 tells us, at this scene with Jesus and John the Baptist, that it, that scene reveals it's not a mere cleansing of some basic way of life led by the world. It's not just a, it's not a tweaking. N.T. Wright puts it this way. Baptism is not magic. It's not a conjuring trick with water. But nor is it simply a visual aid. It is one of the points established by Jesus himself where heaven and earth interlock, where new creation, resurrection life, appears within the midst of the old. And I never thought any of that when I was first baptized in the Columbia River with my wife. I was the recently freed Hebrew slave who didn't know much of anything about what has just happened. But by walking in the company of God's people, 
Jesus keeps showing me more and more, and I know the same is true for all people who pay attention to him. You keep walking in the company of his people, and he continues to show you the way of the Spirit. That's what's so beautiful about belonging to the people. It's never just on you. In this church that Jesus is building more every day, ours is a baptism through the waters, out of slavery, and therefore it's a baptism out of revolutionary zeal and into the spirit of God's eternal mutual love. We're leaving the revolution, stop them with power, fight them with might, destroy our enemy. They're so much worse. We're done with that. And we're stepping into the spirit of God's renewing, forgiving, loving kindness. So, Hero Church, I would say, there is one good God, and may we love the Lord our God with our collective heart and mind and soul and strength, and may we love our neighbors as ourselves. And happy, peace-loving travels to each of you on this adventure toward new creation as we live in the Spirit. Amen.